All right, we are back. In our third segment today, as promised, we're going to talk about uh, my visit with the Planetary Society, at least an event hosted by Pasadena's Planetary Society. Uh, this organization, as we mentioned, was founded by Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan, Bruce Murray, and Lewis Friedman in 1980 to advance the exploration of the solar system and to continue the search for extraterrestrial life. Well, Mars, of course might just have extraterrestrial life. I mean, the jury is out, but it's not something that by any stretch uh, we can eliminate. So the Planetary Society hosted Wild About Mars in conjunction with the Stardust Probe from NASA, which was whizzing by Comet Vild 2. Now, we've, we've sent an, a space probe past a comet once before, Comet Borley. The European Space Agency sent the Giotto spacecraft past Halley's Comet back in 1986. This is the third visit to a comet, but this one's going to bring pieces of it back. Very interesting. It went very well. During Planet Fest, one of these scientists came over, actually a Tom Duxbury, and showed the sequence of photographs taken uh, that confounded everybody. Turns out it was a big... Well, they paid homage to, uh, to Fred Whipple famous astronomer who's still alive, who back in the 1950s said that what basically comets are is are dirty snowballs. And they showed a picture that looked for all the world like a giant snowball. It showed cracks in the surface that apparently were vents from which um, uh, gases evaporate, gases and dust, which gives the comet its uh, characteristic tail. And uh, this is still being processed. The images that we saw were quite stunning. I don't think they've been released to the general public yet. But they will be, and uh, we've advanced the cause of planetary and solar system exploration one more notch with this great success. Now, at 8 o'clock on Saturday night, there was a packed auditorium. There were hundreds of people. There was hardly a chair that was not filled. A lot of interest generated by this attempt to make the fourth landing onto the surface of Mars. On the way down... I'd snagged a copy of William K. Hartman, Dr. William K. Hartman's book, A Traveler's Guide to Mars, and I could not take my nose out of it. It has stunning pictures, many of which I had not uh, seen before, and gives you a geologic breakdown of the entire planet, explaining what is where. Mars is filled with areas that simply have to have resulted from running water, and lots of it. I mean, like, we're talking floods like a hundred, maybe a thousand times the outflow of the Mississippi River. A lot of water. Where'd the water go? Well, for the best estimates, it's still there. It's buried in the ground. It's permafrost. It's percolated down below ground somewhere. The surface of Mars, uh, we now know from the recent Mars Odyssey, has got lots of water in the ground that can be picked up by sensors orbiting in spacecraft. So when we finally get there, when we finally send men to Mars. Uh, one of the prime things they're going to need, water is surely going to be there in abundance with a little bit of work. Now, um, at the time of the landing, Mars was about 10 light minutes away. So as 8.30 approached, we knew that whatever happened had already happened, but it was going to take the telemetry 10 minutes of travel through space at the speed of light to arrive here at Earth to let us know what happened. Now, at Planet Fest in 1999, the Mars Polar Lander was lost. Actually, they lost two missions that year. One, because they sent units of thrust in English units instead of metric, which caused the first probe to crash. And the second time, 
Everyone was waiting with bated breath to see what would happen with these three independent probes in the polar lander. And unfortunately, in a cost-cutting measure, NASA decided to cut out the 20 minutes of telemetry that would explain what happened in case something went wrong. Well, something did go wrong. And we couldn't tell what, because there was no data. So uh, they pointed out back at that time that the, the mantra of NASA at that time was better, cheaper, faster, which I heard one wag at the, uh, at the Planet Fest say, yeah, better, cheaper, faster, pick two. Because you engineers out there know darn well that if it's better and faster, it isn't going to be cheaper. And if it's better and cheaper, it isn't going to come around faster. And if it's faster and cheaper, it's not going to be better. Thankfully, this time, they had telemetry set up to see what would happen when the probe went through the atmosphere. The Planetary Report, which is the magazine of the Planetary Society, had a blow-by-blow of how this would go down, and we actually opened up to the appropriate page and followed as things went in sequence. The uh, Mars lander was to blow a parachute off at one point. It was actually to come in at like 12,000 miles an hour and in a matter of a few minutes slow down basically to uh, something like 20 miles an hour as it bounced across the surface. And yes, it bounced. The um, Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997 sent a little probe down. It weighed 20 pounds called the Sojourner, and it used this sort of beach ball-like technology. It was basically had these inflated gas bags around it that actually had it bounce 15 times across the Martian surface. The bags deflated, and this little tiny robot, tinker toy-like thing, then marched out across and took pictures for, I think, something like a couple of, um, couple of months. Well, this new probe is much more ambitious. It's, uh, it's much bigger, weighs 300 pounds. It's going to be able to move for something like 90 Martian days a tenth of a kilometer a day. It's going to go a long way away and sample the Martian surface. But first it had to get there and land properly. Now you all know now that it did, but there, let me tell you, there was a, a 10 minute period when the initial telemetry reported that yes, it's bouncing across the Martian surface and then they weren't sure what was happening. They weren't sure they were getting a signal. Well, it took 10 minutes to realize, yes, it's down, it's functioning. They later estimated that it bounced at least 25 times across the surface before finally coming to a halt. And let me tell you, they, everyone was just ecstatic. They showed um, the people over at uh, JPL who were just, uh, you know, basically jumping up, giving, uh, giving high fives to one another, breaking out the champagne, for this is now the fourth successful landing on the Martian surface. You've seen already some of the photographs, the, th- the 3D photographs, the panoramas. This is going to be interesting. They're smack dab where they want it to be in the middle of Gusev Crater, an area that surely once was filled with water and sediment. And um, stay tuned. And especially stay tuned because in two weeks they're going to try and do it again with another lander on the opposite side of the planet where they found great deposits of of a mineral called hematite. Hematite normally on Earth forms in conjunction with water. Presumably on Mars, it did likewise. Another good place to look for the remnants of water. We'll be following this story. I just hope they can repeat their success. And by the way, after I spoke with Dr. Lou Friedman, he hopefully will come on the show in the future, as well as Dr. Bruce Murray. Dr. Bruce Murray goes way back to Mariner 4, 
The first successful probe that got to Mars, the U.S. effort in 1965, sent pictures back. And uh, it was a great moment for him, this continuing 40 years of success uh, at Mars. Dr. William K. Hartman uh, also said he'd be happy to talk to you, the listening audience here at KDVS, and we look forward to having him on the program, particularly after uh, this second probe goes down, hopefully to a successful completion of its mission, or actually just the successful beginning of its mission to map out uh, this hematite-laden area on the opposite side of Mars. This is is exciting stuff. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll be following this with you. Oh, and I should mention, I just got a copy of National Geographic January 2004 on the cover, Mars, Is There Life in the Ancient Ice? I'd recommend you grab one. Now, on NPR today, I was listening on the way in, and um, they were talking about this report from the Carnegie Endowment about weapons of mass destruction or lack of therein in Iraq, and how this was at odds with the reports of the administration uh, before the war. (laughs) Duh! You know, I'm really proud of the fact that on this program, we were covering that story from summer 2002 up till the war last winter in March. And we were telling you by talking to various people who knew, who'd been studying this matter, that um, this was a fraudulent claim. And it's quite clear now. I mean, it should be crystal clear to people that there were no nuclear weapons in Iraq. And though they may have had a program for nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, after the first Gulf War, they realized to have any of these things around was an invitation to war, which they did not want. These programs were abandoned, which is why we haven't seen any evidence of these weapons in Iraq. Now, there hasn't been an update on this in something like three months. So, By next week's program, we're going to sort this out and find out what this hubbub is today. I can't believe they're talking to people at the New York Times saying, well, it seems pretty clear that they haven't found any yet, and they probably, well, it's too early to say that they're not going to find any, but uh, it doesn't look good. Well, no, it doesn't look good. Yeah, I was really puzzled to hear someone from the New York Times reporter uh, talking about how, well, uh, uh, maybe this was a massive intelligence failure by the United States, British, and Israeli intelligence services. I don't think so. If you were following the story as we were, you would have known that the CIA was saying there's no evidence for this. We hope to have Ambassador Joseph Wilson return to our program in the next couple of months. Uh, he said uh, that he would, that he would do so as this continues to develop. A special prosecutor has been appointed. They're going to look into this matter of uh, weapons of mass destruction and knowledge before the war that there was no nuclear weapons program in Iraq. As we said on last week's program, the Vanity Fair, uh, the current Vanity Fair with an article about Joseph Wilson and his wife, Valerie Plame, who was a an operator for the Central Intelligence Agency who was outed in retribution for Ambassador Wilson telling the public in a New York Times op-ed piece that, yes, the Bush administration knew that no uranium was being bought from Niger because he went to Niger and filed the report to that effect. All right, my producer, who's um, maintaining um, a clock here on our performance tonight, says we got about four and a half minutes to go. So let's blow through a little uh, cache of material I have here, starting with an article from The Onion, News in Brief. Actually, the first, the first uh, item on the, the Onion's new calendar for 2004. Hollywood diet secrets fall into non-celebrity hands, Dateline Hollywood. In a major Hollywood security leak, an Encino, California company has made... 
Weight Loss Secrets of the Stars, available to the non-famous. And they quote actress Julia Roberts as saying, I am horrified by the implications of this. The institution of celebrityhood could crumble with our thigh-trimming and belly-banishing secrets now public. The global balance of beauty has been tipped forever. God help us. I love those guys at The Onion. Oh, oh! before we, before we do this, there's one final item I should point out. Um, the two Mars landers combined cost $0.8 billion, $800 million. Seems like a lot of money. We would point out, however, that presidential brother Neil Bush has been in the news lately for making $798,000 on three stock trades with a small high-tech company which he, to which he'd been a consultant. This article, which we'll, we'll go back to, I think, next week, did point out, as a reminder, in case you're forgetting, Neil Bush was a director of the Silverado Banking Savings and Loan Association of Denver more than a decade ago. The failure of that one particular Denver institution cost U.S. taxpayers about $1 billion. So well, Neil Bush's company alone cost us more money than what we're doing at Mars right now. We do want to point out, though, Neil was severely punished for what happened. He had to pay a $50,000 civil fine. Fortunately, Neil's now made that up 16 times over. All right, here's an item for you to contemplate on a rainy or foggy day here in the Valley this winter. Hot chocolate contains almost twice as many antioxidants as an equivalent serving of red wine, three times as many as green tea, the current vogue, and five times as many as black tea. Antioxidants are believed to prevent the spread of cancer, lower blood cholesterol levels, and slow aging. Well, antioxidants probably are good for you, and apparently you get them in spades in a cup of hot chocolate. So drink up. Article in the B by food editor Mike Dunn. We need to get we need to get Madeline on from uh, who, who talks about cooking, cooking with Madeline every Thursday morning to talk about this. The quote from the B was that chocolate's beginnings as a beverage have been traced to 1519 in Mexico when an officer in Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez's uh, contingent saw Aztec Emperor Montezuma drink 50 flagons of the stuff a day. To the Aztecs, for whom chocolate was known as, well, I can't pronounce it, looks like coquatl or chocuatl, the drink was a cure for dysentery as well as an aphrodisiac. We're just about out of time, so I don't have time to tell you about the National Seafood Guide, which tells you how to have your fish and eat it too, and to preserve the ocean's bounty by eating wisely when you do this. I will put that off till next week. This is certainly a worthy topic, which we've touched on in the past. We're out of time. We, don't, we can't even tell you about how the industrialized world's fattest kids live in the U.S. Stay tuned for that next week, next Thursday at 5 o'clock. We will, we will again bring you Radio Parallax here on KDVS. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for Todd.